So thanks for that connection. Um, we've been going through this series over the past few, actually since the beginning of the year, on intimacy, right? If you've been here, you would have heard Pastor Andrew talk about this idea, this concept of intimacy. And it's a strange word trying to figure out what does that mean. So we've been exploring it. We've been peeling back the layers and understanding what does it mean for you and for me to find our intimacy with God. Pastor Andrew would have shared with you that we as a leadership here at the Vine have been really wrestling with this idea. God spoke to us and has challenged us to, to lead the charge in helping us all understand that God has called us not just to come into the gates and stand at the entrance. Another way of putting it, he's not called us to settle for the atmosphere of God, but he actually has called us to press in to the person of who God is. Intimacy is when we press beyond the atmosphere. We don't just settle for an idea of God, but pressing in to the person of who God himself is. To not just be satisfied with the atmosphere. This, this kind of call is an invitation to a real journey, right? Intimacy is not a one-time thing. It doesn't just snap and happen, right? It's a whole journey. And so far, we've looked at some of the obstacles that present themselves in our journey towards intimacy with God. The first thing we talked about was this concept of rumors of God, how if we're not careful, we can, we can settle for secondhand accounts of what someone else says about God to be our primary intimacy, Pastor Andrew would have had this little basket. He would have shown you what it looks like to harvest and what it looks like to glean, to pick up the leftovers of what somebody else said. And in order for us to actually have intimacy with Christ, we cannot allow the substance of our spiritual life to just be on someone else's account. Intimacy means you and me have to do the hard work of actually being relational with God, coming close to him. We can't just let it be someone else's story or someone else's sermon. That's predominantly why you hear us regularly say that church cannot just be 90 minutes on a Sunday. That's not just a cool saying. It's because for you to be intimate with God, you've got to press through. It's got to be your time as well. Uh, the idea of secondhand rumors of God, what other people says, can be a challenge to our intimacy. And if you were here last week, you also heard Pastor Andrew talk um, about this idea of blessings, right? And blessings are a good thing. We all love blessings. I want blessings. You want blessings. We all want blessings. Blessings aren't bad. However, our relationship to blessings, our posture to blessings is worth questioning. We, we have the temptation sometimes, if we're not careful, to evaluate our intimacy with God based off of how blessed we are, how many things he's given us. And if we determine our intimacy with God based off of our blessings, we all know that blessings come and blessings go. Some days we are extremely blessed and it's everywhere and it's evident and it's tangible. Some days we're in the desert, but that doesn't mean God has left you. It doesn't mean God is absent. That's why we can't build our intimacy on blessings because we end up building our intimacies with blessings. We end up worshiping the gift over the giver, finding ourselves in a form of idolatry. That's the second thing that ends up being an obstacle, a challenge to our relationship of intimacy with God. See, intimacy is such a powerful thing. Intimacy is vast. It's going to shape the way that you see yourself, the way that you see life, the, the way that you are aligned, the things that you understand. And if we're intimate with God, he shapes us. He aligns us to him and to his will. He shapes our motivations, our preferences, our thought process, or the way that we think. 
He shapes our philosophies and our worldviews and, and our behaviors and our practices. Intimacy and this closeness with God aligns us to him so that we can know and be close to the heart of God. We can hear the creator speak and know that when we speak, he listens and hears us. And if we actually pull it back a little further, I dare say that intimacy is the gift of God himself. That's why we're talking about it. That's why it's so important. Now, achieving intimacy is one thing, right? Getting there, I'm intimate, awesome, cool. Maintaining intimacy is a whole nother struggle. Yes, there are things that will prevent us in our pursuits of intimacy, but once we have achieved and once we have become intimate with God, there are also other things. There are also uh, false gods, lesser goods, alternatives, faulty substitutes that position themselves and present themselves as viable options to God, looking to take our worship and our attention and our time. There are substitutes that are all around us not just obstacles blocking us, things that we can literally turn to accidentally and find our intimacy with them. And that's what we're gonna be looking at over the next two weeks. Two major things that we, if we're not careful, will turn to and find intimacy with. Things that literally end up taking the place of God in our lives. So with that said, let's, let's talk about these things that we turn to. It's good for us to understand this, that we have this tendency that when, uh, when, when we fail to find intimacy in Christ, we are then tempted to turn somewhere else. Now, this is not like some big spiritual concept. This is an everyday thing. If you try at something and you fail to find the success you need at it, by nature, you're going to look somewhere else for it, right? Like if I try hard to turn this light on and it's not working, I'm going to go find another light. That just makes sense, that's just common sense. But for us, we have to be aware that if we fail to find intimacy or fail to find satisfaction in Christ, then these other things become seemingly more desirable, seemingly like they'll fulfill more, like they will give us the validation and the significance that we think that we need, that they would satisfy. And if we're not aware, other things, good things, end up taking the place in our hearts that only God was ever actually meant to occupy. And that's why we have to wrap our heads around this and, and think around it and be careful. And perhaps one of the most common, one of the easiest forms, one of the most inconspicuous things that wrestles and, 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 and seeks and pulls us into intimacy and if we're not aware of it, we'll find ourselves turning to it time and time again. It's called the world. Now, I, I grew up in church, and I've heard the phrase the world a lot. It speaks, it's really big, it's kind of a, a big concept. It doesn't really say a lot, Is the world. What does that even mean, right? Like, the world is a lot, but the world is also nothing in its explanation. But we do know that scripture as a whole speaks about this concept of the world, and my hope is that as we look into scripture today, we'll be able to help you understand what does it mean for the world to vie for our affections, and what does it look like for our response to be correct in that. Specifically, the author John in 1 John has a lot to say about the world. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your smartphones, if you like the screen, uh, we have it right here. So let's read this together. It says this, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. 
For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Let me pray for us. God, we come before your word knowing that it speaks, that it's living and active, that it's meant to speak to our hearts, that it's meant to shape us and change us. So Holy Spirit, would you open us this morning? Would you allow us to position ourselves to, to hear from you, God, what your word has to say? Will you allow us to position ourselves to be shaped by the truth found in your word, God? May it speak and may we be a people who hear and respond. So let me pray. Amen. So the first thing that we see in this passage is that John is going to create somewhat of a duality. He's going to create two options. There's the way of the world, and then there's the way of the Father. He's not saying that they're bad or good. He's just saying there's the world and there is the Father. Two different ways, two paths, if you would have it that way, two, two alternative options for how your intimacy can be placed and how you can live. Actually, if we zoom in even further, we'll see that across these two passages, John is going to emphasize one phrase a lot. He's gonna look at the word, the world, six times in two verses. Do not love the world, anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, in the world, from the world, the world and its desires. John is speaking predominantly to a concept of the world. And when something, a good little tip for you in your Bible studying, in your scripture reading, when you read a passage and you see a phrase show up over and over and over and over again, the author is intending for us to pick something up. He's showing us what the key concept truly is. And what John is doing here is showing us that there's something about the world that we need to understand before we decide where our allegiance will be. All right? So the word that he uses to represent the world is the Greek word that we get our English word cosmos from. Now, the cosmos is something that might be quite familiar to all of us, right? Cosmos speaks of the world. We think of the, the physical planet, the physical space. That's one of the biggest um, definitions of what that word means, speaking of the earth and matter and substance, the things that are tangible that we can feel and touch. However, when John is talking about that, when he's talking about the world, it would be really odd to utilize this definition, to not love the physical space, to not love the earth and the ground and the sphere that we live in. So actually, in Greek, there's two definitions, the two primary definitions to the word cosmos. Yes, there is the idea of the earth and the physical space. However, there's a secondary definition which speaks of this. It speaks to systems and structural ways of doing things that are different from God. That's, the, that's what the word itself means. The world can speak of the sphere or can speak of the systems that are different than God and how we do things. Speaking to the intangible elements of the world. So for us to understand what he's saying about these systems and its impact, we're gonna dive really deeply into the idea of the world. I'm gonna give us an easy definition to remember so that we can hold on to it. So when I say the phrase, the world, we won't think so general, but we'll have a clear position of what that means, okay? Everyone with me still? Yeah. All right, so when we speak of the world, John is primarily saying this, the societal or cultural systems and attitudes that govern our values, beliefs, and practices. 
Say that one more time. When, when John is saying do not love the world and the world this and the world that, he's speaking of the societal or cultural systems and attitudes that govern our values, beliefs, and our practices. See, culture can shape things around us. Culture is powerful. It can shape the way that we process information. It can govern our understanding of our feelings and our behavior. It can define for us what is right and it can define for us what is wrong. It becomes the lens that we wear to evaluate the experiences that we have as either good or worthy or not enjoyable. Culture is powerful because it sets for us a set of general norms that we live within, and sometimes we don't even question it. It's just the way things are, right? Culture shapes and molds the way that we think. So when John is speaking of the world, he's speaking of the authority that we give culture to decide for us what is true and what is right, what is good, what is important, what our priorities should be, what we should believe and what we should do. And if he's saying that six times across two verses, let's actually ask ourselves, what does culture actually say? We all live here. What does culture say to us, right? Culture directs the way that we live. It directs our lives. It tells us, study hard, work harder, get a good job, save a lot of money. Don't get married so you can afford to take care of your spouse and feed your kids, right? Nothing bad about that. Those are actually some good, good statements, good ways to live. But the culture that we live in values that. It tells us this is how we ought to be. Culture gives us formula. It says if you work hard or work hard enough, you'll earn a lot and you'll be able to take care of yourself and give the money to things that are promising, to things of, of value. Save a lot for yourself. You never know when you're gonna need some extra, extra change. Culture can define our behavior. An eye for an eye. Do the practical thing that makes sense. Don't loan money to people who can't pay you back. Eh, kind of makes sense. You get what you deserve. Take care of yourself first. Worry about your own problems. Mind your own business before you worry about the other person's issues. Seek the road that gives you the highest return. Perhaps seek pleasure and avoid pain. Love your neighbor. Treat your neighbor good. Maybe not hate your enemy, but don't got time for haters, right? Haters are going to hate, I think is a famous phrase that goes around these days. Culture validates significance. You're, you're, you're a, you're a, you have meaning because you're popular. You have value because what you're saying and what you're doing and what you're producing is relevant. The more followers you have, the higher your worth somehow becomes. That's a weird system. The more friends you have online, that makes you into a more likable person? Maybe. But that, that's just kind of what we've accepted. That's kind of how things are. And perhaps the most interesting one is that culture shapes the how. Manifest it and it will happen. Have you ever heard that idea? Manifest it and it'll happen. Just will it into existence. Life is what you make of it. Live your truth. You're the captain of your soul. Self-care and repeat. Just follow your heart. Just live. I think YOLO used to be a cool thing for millennials. Where I come from, it's risk it for the biscuit. Or if you grew up in black culture, it's you do you, boo-boo. All right, like, like these, are the, these are the things that we hear. These are the things that end up shaping us. The reality is that these sayings and these beliefs are a direct byproduct of the culture we live in. They are what the world says. 
So when John speaks of the world, he's speaking of the systems and attitudes predominantly brought on by our culture and our society. It's the way that our society sees and perceives things. It's not evil, per se. It's not bad, even. It's the way it is. It becomes the norm. It's our default way of operating. It's just the way that we go. In this whole passage, John gives us all these ideas of the world, but then he interjects, and he's actually changing the direction of everything by introducing the Father. He's saying, yes, there's a way, there's a default system, there are norms, there's culture, there's society that tells you how to live and what to do and what to believe and what your priorities should be, but there's also another way. There's also the way of the Father. There's also a different way. Much like when he speaks of the world, John refers to the Father. He's primarily speaking about how God and kingdom values can shape the way that we see the world. And all that happens because Christ comes into the world and reveals to us both who God is, the heart of God, the nature of God, who we are. It's based off of Christ's revelation. So in Christ, we have a tangible and clear picture of the Father, of the way of the Father by this, Christ ends up shaping how we see things, how we process information. He defines for us what is right and what is good and what is wrong. Christ becomes the lens by which we evaluate the experiences in our world if we are subscribed to this way of the Father. Christ shapes and molds our thinking. So when John speaks of the Father, he's speaking of the authority that we have given Christ to decide for us what is true and what is right what is important, what is priority, and what is good. So what does the option of Christ say? Christ shows us how to live. He tells us to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Really good things. Nobody's going to say no to that. Christ says he welcomes those who are vulnerable. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This was revolutionary when it was spoken. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Perhaps my favorite one. Blessed are you when you are persecuted falsely. Blessed are the victims. Ooh. Christ redefines our strength. He says, blessed are the meek. Seek justice for the marginalized and take care of the widow and the orphan. Care for the alien and the stranger in your land. He says, Give without expecting a return. I think the parable, he says, when your right hand is giving, make sure your left hand doesn't know what's happening. All right? He says, yeah, love your neighbor, but get this, love your enemy. Christ, Christ says, turn the other cheek and maybe go the extra mile. Not just if someone requires you to go a mile with them, go a mile further. Christ defines, redefines our strength. Christ purifies our hearts. He says, blessed are the pure in hearts. Do good deeds so that your Father will be glorified. Beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people. Store up treasures not here on earth, but in heaven. Humble yourself before the Lord. And lastly, Christ is our source. He will tell us things like this. Do not be anxious. Ask God for what you need. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If God clothes the lilies of the field, how much more will he clothe you? If God will feed the birds of the air, how much more would he feed you? 
tells us that if you have to ask, it'll be given. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. The heart is deceitful above all else. Man might plan his way, but it's the Lord that directs his steps. See, these sayings and beliefs, this is the way of the Father. They reflect the heart of God. In the intimate journey of transformation, he takes his followers on, those who are submitted to him. We become shaped and molded by the way of the Father. So when John speaks of the Father, it's these systems. It's these attitudes predominantly brought on by Christ at the center of our lives. So with an understanding of the way of the world, culture, society, things that are just okay, not bad, not good, just are, and the way of the Father, John now turns our attention to understand the relationship between the two and what we, who we are to be relating to the world and to the Father. John would say this, do not love the world or anything in the world. I'll say that again, because that's a really big statement. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Let me put this in sermon series language for us so we stay quite relevant. Do not find your intimacy with the world. You cannot afford to find your intimacy with the world if the love of the Father is meant to be evident in you. Right? John divides us two different ways, two different paths. He separates them. And I think the temptation for us um, is a lot more subtle than this text. I think whenever we hear about the world or idols, we're like, okay, I'm not bound down to idols. I'm not worshiping the world. I'm okay. And I think for most of us, most mornings, we don't wake up, pop out of bed, alarm clock goes off, and we're like, all right, what am I going to do today? Let's worship the world. I don't think that's on anyone's agenda, right? No one wakes up like, how can I love the world? How can I put God on the shelf? How can I forget about Christ? How can I just worship the world and myself and myself and the world? I, I, think, I think it's actually significantly more subtle therefore more dangerous than that. I think for a lot of us, and please don't miss this, for a lot of us, we want to love Jesus. We want to do the right thing. We want to be intimate with Jesus. We want to have Jesus. But if we're honest, we also want to sprinkle a little bit of the world on there. We also want some of the things that the world offers, some of society's values, some of society's preferences. So perhaps we subscribe quite a lot to the way that the world operates. And that's the tricky thing. We want the, 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 I buy Jesus and get a side of the world, the combo meal, the buy one, get one free concept. And John is saying, ah, it doesn't work that way. It, it cannot work that way. Those two things, you, you, can't, you can't have them both. You can't be walking towards Jesus, but also walking towards the world, right? It's, 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 like, it's like this lamp. It's either on or it's off. It can't be on-off. It doesn't exist, right? So I can, if, if I pull harder, it'll be, no, no, it's still on. If I pull it again, it's still off. There's no middle ground. There's no fence to sit on. And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, if we evaluate where we are, are fence sitters. We're, we're trying to get some Jesus, and we're trying to come to church, but also when we go through Monday to Friday, where while some of our practices might be a bit dodgy, and some of the preferences that we have may be a bit cutthroat, and we might not really love our neighbor, we might tolerate them, and we definitely don't love our enemies. The two things kind of don't, don't work. 
They can't go together. If your intimacy, I'll put it this way, it's a dichotomous scale, right? So the more you choose to be intimate with the things of the Father, if you walk towards the Father in your intimacy, you're actually walking away from the things of the world. Same vice versa. If we walk towards the world in our intimacy, we're walking away from the things of the Father. You can't do them both. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to come across as someone who is condoning, you know, just be holy, live in your holy house on top of the hill and talk to no one and don't have Instagram and don't have friends and don't drive a car and don't have electricity. And I'm not saying that. That's actually not what the scripture is saying, right? To, 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 to love God and to choose to walk closer to God, what it means is that these things control you less. These things own you less. They serve you. You don't serve them. There's a freedom that we step into when we choose to walk in intimacy with God and allow the things of the world. We just sang it. The cross before me, the what behind me? The world behind me, right? It's this way of engaging with God where we are choosing to walk closer to him and leaving certain things behind by choice, by choice. The reality is if we aren't careful, we can allow culture and present philosophies and pseudo-psychology and social norms to govern the way that we see things and practice life. If our aim and our chief satisfaction is in satisfying ourselves, if we give society the ultimate authority to define what is right and what is wrong, what is good, then we are in fact substituting intimacy with Christ for intimacy with the lust of the flesh. Intimacy with the lust of the eyes. Intimacy with the pride of life. And John makes it very clear. He goes, these things do not come from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires will pass away. But whosoever will do the will of the Father lives forever. Incompatible. The two things don't mix. Think of oil and water. The values of love others first and humble yourself before God and blessed are the poor and the meek don't really work that well in the marketplace, right? It's kind of a hard thing to do. God's ways are different. His people, therefore, must be different. The values and methods of Christ when compared to the world, they, they cannot coexist. There, there is no blend of them. I know I'm beating that to a pulp, but I just got to make that really clear. And, and I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why can't I have a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of world? Why do they not work out that way? Well, well, here's the thing. God is a jealous God. There's a place in your heart for God. There's a place you were created for him, by him, through him. You have life because of him. And so he, if he moves into your life, he takes up all of it. There is no space for anyone else. Jesus is not hoping to have a roommate in your heart that he shares with. It's either Jesus or it's the other person, right? He's too big for that. James chapter 4, the message version, reads it really, really well. I'm just going to read it to you. So take a minute. I'm just, it's not going to be on the screen, so you have to really listen in. It says like this. You are cheating on God if all you want is your way, flirting with the world every chance you get. You end up as enemies of God and his ways. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he is a fiercely jealous lover. And this is the best part. And what he gives 
what he offers, the way of the Father, is far better than anything else you'll ever find. That's the kicker. That's the kicker. Our tendency is pairing. It's pairing. It's Christ and something. Christ and an intimacy with this. Christ and uh, fill in the blank. So Christ and success, maybe, for some of us. Christ and validation. Christ and relevance. Christ and creativity. Christ and security. Christ and, and blessings. Christ and. But I think that it's supposed to be Christ alone. Right? Christ alone, not Christ and stuff. Christ and things. We will find ourselves settling for the idea of Jesus if we are trying to pair him with something, never really getting to him itself. And so I think when you look at a message like this, I'm, I'm oftentimes cautious. I don't ever want to come across as Promise has read all this stuff and his life is like perfect now, so he's telling you guys, get your act together, okay? That's not the case. Couldn't be further from the truth. I am just as broken as everyone else. So I, I wanted to share, because Christ and fill in the blank can be maybe, maybe too broad for you. So let me share what it is for me. What is my Christ and that I struggle with every single day? For me, it's Christ and control. I want to control my life. I, I want to have a say in what I do. I, wanna, I was telling Tony, I like to plan out what I'm going to do every decade. At 30, I'm going to have a master's and have my first kid. In my 40s, I'm going to start my PhD. In my 50s, I'm going to be a professor. In my 60s, I'm going to write a book. Like, I have it all planned out. I've written it out. It's a beautiful chart. It's an Excel sheet. I know what to do. Christ in controls for me. But this is the reason, because I don't want to depend on nobody else. Right? I have a sad story, too. I came from a messed up situation, too. I know what it's like to not have anything. I want to make sure I earn enough. So it's me having to give myself the independence to make sure I earn enough, to make sure I have the right job, to make sure that my kids are fed, and make sure my wife goes without need. I, I struggle with letting God have control. And some of my closest friends will tell you that's the one thing they pray for me all the time. I just can't let it go. I, I really, really struggle. For me, it's always pairing the idea of Christ. I want to be a good Christian. I want to be intimate with God. But also, I really want to have control and have a say in how things turn out and make sure my life isn't a complete mess. I pair them together. And Christ has been convicting me that rather than pairing my control with Christ, I'm supposed to be submitting, submitting my control to Christ. This is the thing. These objects, these, these concepts aren't bad in of themselves. God didn't just create these things and said there's just a bunch of bad things in the world. No, there's a lot of good out here. But the problem that we potentially have, the tendency that we have is to pair together things when things are supposed to be submitted. And so I, I ask you, but that's my story. That, that's, that's my reality. And maybe it's the same for some of you. But what is it? What are the things, if you were to really ask yourself, what am I pairing with Jesus that I'm supposed to be submitting to Jesus? What good is there out there that I like that I've actually accidentally put at the same level or made an idol of or become more intimate with? And it's pushing out Jesus day in and day out. It is wearing me out. It is exhausting to try and juggle both because it's not possible. For some of us, uh, not on scripts, for some of us, it's within relationships. And I really, I prayed about it this morning. I really felt like I was supposed to share it at the 11 o'clock, so bear with me. If there is a relationship in your life where you are putting that person at the same level of Jesus, let me explain why it doesn't work. Because only God can satisfy fully. 
Only God can fulfill. So what we end up doing isn't just hurting ourselves. We actually end up hurting that person. We put God-like expectations on them to satisfy and, and make us feel or make us be a certain way when that can only be found in God. And that's not a rebuke. That's clarity. All right? The Father reveals these things that we might change, that we might turn away. So if that is you, I ask you to wrestle with it for a bit. You know, what is it? Maybe that's not you. Maybe it's something else. But we all have this temptation, and that ends up thwarting our intimacy away from walking closely with Christ and instead being intimate with other things. So I recognize this is a challenging, not even challenging, it's a very black and white sermon, very uh, strong worded maybe. Um, so I, I never want to end on a negative. So I want to offer us some, some, some thoughts, some ways, because the scriptures are so good. Like God doesn't just tell us, oh, don't do this. And then like disappears. He actually leads us to a place of greater intimacy with him. So I want to provide us two, uh, I won't say simple, but hopefully simple to remember steps. Some two things that we can do that will help us better choose where we're going to be intimate, who we're going to be intimate with. Is that Okay. First thing is this, it begins by recognizing transformation over conformity. There's a passage in Romans 12 that tells us not to conform to the patterns of this world, not the patterns, the ideas, the systems, the structures, the way that the world operates, to not conform to that, but through the renewing of our minds to then be transformed. The renewing of our minds, do not conform to the world. Live in the world. Be in the world. Don't be of the world. That's what that verse is saying. My second thing is this. I, I share a quick story before I tell you this point. Last Sunday, I was listening to Pastor Andrew preach, and I was like, he got to his, like, um, I don't know, his deliverables or his action points, right? Because every good pastor has like a, an action point. Um, and one of his action points was my favorite passage in scripture from Matthew chapter six. It's the idea of seeking first the kingdom. And I was so annoyed. No one else afterwards. I'm like, Andrew, you stole my point for next week. Um, he laughed and he hugged me. Um, he goes, preach it anyways. Uh, here's the thing. We're not saying it twice because, you know, we just want to repeat it. We're saying it twice because we want you to actually do it. Like, this is super important. The idea of God-centered priorities will change everything for us. It will change everything for us. Matthew tells us to seek first, first, the first thing, the most important thing, the thing of most value, the thing of highest worth. Seek first his kingdom. He's defining for us what we should think and how we should believe and how we should live. Seek first the kingdom. And he doesn't say ignore everything else. He doesn't say, oh, well, we'll see what happens. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things. Where promises kids go to school. <laughs> how much money is in promises account. <laughs> promises wife and family being in America, but me living in Hong Kong and missing Christmas for 10 years in a row all the things that are hard. He says, seek first my kingdom. Seek first my kingdom promise, and I will take care of everything else. He doesn't tell me how he's going to do it. He doesn't say, here are my four steps. Here's a PowerPoint. Go look at it. But he invites me to trust him. And in that invitation of trust is perhaps a beautiful invitation to intimacy with God. Seek first his kingdom. Uh, I know there's lots of process I know there's a lot of things in here, but I, I really want us to, I guess, leave today 
encouraged and hopeful. Because if we grasp what intimacy is, if we can fall in love with the idea of being connected, being aligned, being in a God who speaks, who listens, who walks with you through every trial and who does not give you temptations you cannot handle, who is your ever-present help, who is your rock and your strong tower, who is the rock of your salvation, if we can understand intimacy with that, I believe it'll make us rethink our allegiances. If we can know that intimacy with God means I can choose peace. I don't have to worry about the things. He actually tells me, don't worry about it at all. Don't be anxious for anything. Two different places, Matthew and James, made it real clear. Don't be anxious. Let's leave it up to him. Intimacy with God, choosing intimacy with God, because the world will say, worry about it. Plan, plan, plan. Get your spreadsheets. Do your homework. Prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. God's saying, don't be anxious. Be, to be a Christian means to walk through this without anxiety, right? To live and there's things happening, but to not be shaken because our house isn't built on the sand. It's not built on what is important and popular in 2024 that'll probably be different in 2025 and different in 2028. It's not based off of popular psychology or pseudo-psychology or, or whatever magazine we're reading, whatever the news tells us, because our hope is built on Christ and he's an unshakable rock. That position is available for you. This is a, this passage is a call for us to come back. It's a call for us to recognize that we're human, we made mistakes, it's okay, but there's a way back. So as the band comes up, I, I want to end with the reality of one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite parables in scripture. It's the parable of the two sons Right, I think it was somewhat familiar to some of us. But the idea is that these two sons have a father. One son gets his inheritance early, dips out, and he runs to the world. How fitting. Fits right in. It's almost like I planned it. Um, he goes out to the world, and he squanders his wealth, and he does his thing, and he lives his life. And let's say he makes quite a few mistakes to where he's dirt poor, can't eat, has nowhere to sleep. He's messed it up, and he, the thought goes through his head one day. You know, rather than living, living here in the pigsty and, and just being cold and dirty and hungry and not clothed, maybe I can go back to my father, and maybe he will at least, you know, allow me to be a servant in his house and take care of, like, the cattle or something. And so he musters up the courage to go back to his father, and on his way to his father, his father sees him. And perhaps one of the most beautiful things, he disrobes so that there is nothing holding him back, nothing resisting him from sprinting to his son that he loves. It doesn't matter that he's messed up. It doesn't matter that he's chosen the world over the father. The father drops everything. He runs and he hugs him and he welcomes him. He doesn't reject him. He doesn't say, you dirty sinner. He welcomes him in. He loves him. It's such a story of love. He, he takes his coat and he puts it on him. He takes his ring and puts it back on him to let him know that you're not just going to be someone taking care of my cattle. No, you're my family. You're, you're with me. I still want to be intimate with you. And, and perhaps there are some of us who are curious about what that road looks like back to the Father. Can I just encourage you that the Father's arms are open wide, that he's a Father that welcomes us back. He welcomes the vulnerable. Says that if we are faithful enough to uh, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and restore us. We kept singing, he makes all things new. He makes, oh, we wrote that on purpose, y'all. Like that is the truth of who he is. He will make you new, but will you be open? Will you be open?
And so I wanna pray for us. And so if we can all just go ahead and stand, we'll just take a moment and we will just come to the Father together. You know, if, if this message hits anything for you, whether it's about priorities or about allegiances or about your intimacy or about the pairing, can I just ask you to open your hands as a symbol, not for me, not for your neighbor, but this is a moment between you and God. If there's something here that you feel like I need to do with God, I need to speak with God, just open your hands. And Holy Spirit, as we, as we sit here under your word, under your truth and your clarity, but also under your grace and forgiveness. God, we open our hands symbolically to say that we've messed up, that there's been moments, there are things that vie for our affections and our attentions. We open our hands to say, God, we're open. Could you please come? Would you please enter? Would you please come to meet us? We know that your arms are open, Father. We know that the road back to you is one where you welcome us and that you love us, that you call us your own, that you call us sons and daughters, your family. God, so I just pray against any lie that's in anyone's head now. Any voice that says, no, 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 no. Will God actually accept you? Will God actually respond to you? Any seeds of doubt that are flowing through this place, we rebuke them. But instead, we speak your truth, we speak your grace, we speak your mercies that are new every single morning. We, we speak your steadfast love over your people that leads us back to a place of intimacy with you. And God, Holy Spirit, would you begin to remind us and show us what it means to be intimate with the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creators of us. God, would you draw us in? Would you hold us close? Would you give us the fortitude and the courage to continue taking a step towards you, forsaking everything else? Because you are better. Because you are better. We give you glory for this in Jesus' name.